Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Terry Gilliam. Bless you all. So you probably remember some of these people. Yeah. And, um, Everybody's a little bit older, <laughs> but not wiser, obviously. <laughs> You've turned up again. <laughs> Fill us in on your last 10 years. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. It was, it was funny. Driving out here, I remembered the whole evening of the blizzard, which was yeah. quite extraordinary and memorable. Uh, since then, it's been <laughs> downhill, I guess. <laughs> Those are the high points. Twelve Monkeys was a surprise hit. I was so convinced it wasn't going to work opening on December 27th that it turned out to be huge. It was the top film in the country. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And uh, and then I made the fatal mistake of working with Johnny Depp and uh, making Fair and Loathing. And <laughs> boom! It's been ever since. It's been really, really bad. <laughs> Tell us... Um, a bit about how you got into this film because you were working on Brothers Grimm. I guess I, from what I understand, the book came, came yeah, to you what, first. What, ba what basically happened is uh, this actually, we started this project before Brothers Grimm. Uh, I was trying to get a couple of my other projects going, which were larger budgets, so i.e. Uh, uh, difficult. And people, as they do, send scripts. People with dreams and hopes and aspirations send scripts and books to me, thinking that I can somehow get them made into films, and it's just not true normally. And the, the stack sort of builds up, and one day I just said, oh, I was feeling guilty, and I grabbed one. <laughs> and it was this book called Tideland, and I just started reading it. Within five or six pages, I was completely blown away by the book. I just thought, here's this voice, this, this voice of a child. And, and then the book went on. I couldn't wor work out where it was going to go. It was terrifying and wonderful and exciting. So I said, let's do it. So I called up Tony Grizzoni, who I write with, gave him the book. He said, let's make it. Then I, we hunted down Jeremy Thomas, who produces Bertolucci's movies. Mm -hmm. He said, let's make it. We all thought, this is going to be easy. Low budget, go. Couldn't get the money. Nobody wanted to touch this thing. Uh, it turns out men control the money in movies in most <laughs> cases, and men didn't get the story generally. Mm -hmm. So uh, actually what happens is Brothers Grimm came along, and I was so desperate for work, I said, I'll, I'll get involved in that. And in the and <laughs> and actually, I've got to say, I like the movie. I don't apologize for it. I'm quite happy with the movie. Uh, the experience was something else. But, uh, and, uh, but when I reached a point of Brothers Grimm where... We had cut the film. Leslie Walker cut both films. We were happy with it. We had had a couple of screenings. There wasn't anything that we could do to make it any better. And it reached a point where the brothers Weinstein felt, you know, the film wasn't there. There was another film there. There was a great film there. If only they could get their grubby little hands on it. And I, I learned dealing with them that the best way to deal with is not to fight. It's something I've learned very late in life, mm -hmm. just as I become a old-age pensioner in, in London, I've learned not to fight, so I kept backing up. And, and I said, okay, I've got another film to do, because Jeremy Thomas at that point had said, we've got the money. And, um, and so I said, okay, Brothers Grimm, you guys take it. Do whatever you want with it. I've got another film to make. And I went off to Canada and made it and, uh, and came back. And while I was 
editing this film, I got a call from the Weinsteins to finish Brothers Grimm my way. And so I ended up editing both films at the same time, running from one cutting room to the other. Uh, you learn to hate a film when you're cutting it, and then you can escape to another one and until you learn to hate that one, and then you're back to this one. <laughs> and goes, um, we did, uh, and it worked well. Was it true that the, that uh, Mitch Cullen sent the book only hoping to get a blurb from you for? Yeah, he, <laughs> he just wanted he just wanted something for the cover, a blurb, <laughs> which I gave him, and I it was printed on the British ones. I don't know if it was done here. It says, you know, fucking marvelous. It said, I want to see that word on the cover of a book. You know, fucking marvelous, <laughs> and it got printed, and uh, so he was very happy. <laughs> So tell us a bit about the spirit of the production. It seemed like it must have been a, um, as you know, whatever dark or, or sort of twisted as, as some of the subject matter is. It actually felt like a fun, yeah. liberating experience to make it. Oh, no, it was a joy because number one, Jerry, Jeremy Thomas is a wonderful producer. He just leaves me alone. That <laughs> that's a good thing. And uh, and we were in Saskatchewan. We were away from the world. Um, it was a great crew, and we just did it. Um, there weren't any problems. The whole thing was so easy. I mean, luckily, it's proved to be difficult selling the film. It was difficult getting the money, but the making of all was was a breeze. It was again when you adapt a book, it's always that tricky feeling of feeling totally responsible. You don't want to make another film. You want to be true to the book. I think we did that pretty accurately. One of the things that you changed for the book is that the book is written from the first person of the girl and that you've made the decision not to do that. Could you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, well, it, it just seemed that if you did it from the first person, it relaxes the audience because you know she comes out okay in the end. And I thought there was a lot more tension to be had not knowing where this thing was going and what was going to happen to this little girl. And it seemed a better way of, of going. So it, in, in some ways, the film is probably a little bit more difficult than the book because you don't know. I think it's the thing I love about the film as I did in the book. I don't know where it's going at any point. It doesn't take the normal forms. We're getting so used to the structure of movies now. I, I watch a movie now, I know exactly what's going to happen. I may not know the detail, but the rhythms are almost like a pop song now. Bunk, and that's going to happen there, and then that's going to happen there, and then that's got to move there. I this is getting boring. Let's see if we can go another route. It's, and, it, and it does make it for a lot of people very difficult, and a lot of people can't stand it because it's not telling them where it's going to go next. Could you tell us a bit then about the reaction? Because um, the the introductory piece that we showed with <laughs> you sort of preparing the audience um, was a recent addition. <laughs> so could you talk about why you felt you needed that? Well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I've been going to so many festivals this year. I'm bleeding. Uh, and it's uh, – I just uh, – <laughs> Somebody stabbed me in the back. That's blood. That's mine. <laughs> you don't trust people in New York, do you? No, I don't. Jesus. Uh, hey, um, I've been going to a lot of festivals this year to promote the film, to, to, and I do an intro at the beginning, which is you know, a longer version of that and, and a bit more comic. But and I thought, I'm going to have to be doing this for every time this film is shown. I'm going to have to go out and tell people how to approach it. Um, because people are always telling me after these screenings, oh, I'm glad you talked to us at the beginning because you helped us get into it. So at the very last moment in London, just before it came out there, I said, come on, I'll do an intro and we'll see what happens. Um, and I've then showed it to, well, at certain screenings and people seemed to think it was useful having a little bit of a, a lead into how to approach this film. What is it that, that you think might cause trouble? Is it, is it more of a morality thing or more of an aesthetic? Response? I hoped it was going to be a morality thing, but it because <laughs> <laughs> the film, 
really does push a lot of buttons. Yeah. And I've always thought of it as a kind of litmus paper test of people. I can't predict who's going to like it and who's not going to like it and why people are going to like it or not like it. But there are very strong reactions. I knew that would happen. And that's what in intrigued me. Uh, what, what's been surprising, I thought it would start dialogues. Now, it does. I think when you leave tonight, I'm sure there are those of you who liked it and those who didn't like it. And there's usually a lot of arguments afterwards over dinner, which I think, oh, that's great. So, something to talk about rather than leaving the cinema and saying, well, what did you think? Well, it was okay, okay, okay. Well, now we're going to talk about. Uh, that's what normally happens when it, my wife and I go to the cinema. But So this was a chance to get people really talking over, over drinks and dinner afterwards. And we've had some wonderful, almost fist fights over the film, which is good. However, on uh, a professional level, the critics, it's, it's quite extraordinary. They don't even want to deal with the film. They dismiss it unwatchable, pathetic, over-the-top, Gilliam can't tell the story. They rubbish it, so they don't even deal with what the film is about. And I was saying earlier that, you know, to me, 10-15% of the critics get it and love it, and the rest just dismiss it. So there's no public dialogue about it, which is the disappointment. Well, let's get some response if people want to uh, show their reactions or ask questions. I'll open it up to the audience. You say that you discovered your inner child, but I guess your implication is that a lot of your films have sort of dealt with mm -hmm. this. Um, some of the same ideas, imagination, fantasy yeah. versus reality. Yeah. So what's different? I think now? the difference was it's, a, it's about a little girl. There is a difference there. I mean, it's, it's a half a joke is what I'm trying. I'm trying to get the people at least smile at the beginning of the film before <laughs> they get into this thing. <laughs> uh, but it was actually true. It was, it was a very interesting experience because you start playing with dolls. I mean, uh, old, old man, I'm playing with dolls again. And that's an important thing because each of those dolls had, we, we had a pile, hundreds of them, and we had to choose it. It was like choosing a character um, when you're making a movie. It's casting the movie. And each one was discussed. And, and you, so you have to learn to play again. And, and that's what basically doing, I think, the making of the movie, I was in many ways the, the child on the set. Jodell was the adult. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and and, and it, was, it was an interesting thing. I would encourage her oftentimes to play more. It was interesting about her. She's such an extraordinary actress. She's been acting since she was four years old. Um, and when we rehearsed with her, we had a couple of weeks of rehearsal with everybody together. And for all the TV and film parts she's had, she'd never rehearsed before. She didn't understand what playing was about. That's what rehearsal is. And one had to encourage her to do that. So I was it was it was a strange one. On one hand, I was the the main character and, and trying to be like that. But on the other hand, I was never directing her. I was always just there's the scene, it's written, there's the situation. Jodell, go to work. And she would surprise us every time. She took us places that, you know, we wouldn't, as adults, dare to go. I think in particular, the scene kissing Dickens, the first kiss. We were sitting there at the monitors. <laughs> <laughs> what is she doing? <laughs> I mean, and that's a little girl. And that's a little girl playing. I, I felt a responsibility not to direct her in many areas like that. I tried to encourage her to just have fun and be free to do whatever she wanted to, but that was it. And then she would go, and she constantly caught us. I mean, that scene was interesting about the third take. Brendan Fletcher, who plays Dickens, completely lost his lines. And I said, cut, cut. What's happened, Brendan? I said, I, said, I don't know. I mean, it was like she was hypnotizing me. She had complete control of me. I'd, I was lost in her eyes. And uh, that's what that scene's about, and it's perfect. <laughs>
Okay. Usually a Hollywood film has an, uh, might have an explosion at the ending, but it's a happy ending or it resolves things. And this is a so if you could talk about like what what you were playing around with with it's, the ending. I mean, I think what bothers a lot of people is that she doesn't seem to react to all those people dying and bleeding to death. She's a child. This is what I think is so extraordinary. We keep forgetting what children are. They're really selfish <laughs> little creatures designed to survive. And, and I keep saying, you know, you drop and they bounce. They're tough. And we've somehow sentimentalized childhood. And this is a little girl who's obviously, she's been through quite a bit. And this thing happens. And the idea of when Brendan or Dickens apparently appears, is like, my hero, he's done it. He's blown it up. She's not aware of the death and destruction. She's partly, I mean, the character is always aware of what's going on. But it's how she deals with it and how she either um, suppresses it or ignores it. And she is ignoring it for a bit, but then I think she is very aware of what's happening so there. But, but there's a yeah. selfishness there. But she found this right away. So you were talking about her, her coming up with her own responses. And yeah. this ending, which is so extraordinary, that was sort of how she... Yeah, I mean, I just... We, we stage it. There's the, It's the way the book ends, and that's it. And I just said, Jodell, you start there, and you walk there. And you stop there, and you react there. That's it. You do it. And that's what she chose to do. And it's, it's she's she's so bright. She thinks it out, but she's not thinking the way an adult thinks. An adult is thinking, aware of the reality of what's there. Those lives destroyed, people. That's what we as adults think. She's not thinking that. This child is not thinking that. She's thinking, wow, he did it. He did the big one, just like in a movie, isn't it? I mean, I think there's a lot of that sense of what we we get into. I mean, look at the way. We watch television. It's happening all the time. It's nice entertainment, isn't it, as long as you're not there? Well, she's in it, and yet she's still behaving like we behave when we watch television. Uh, it's just this event. It's kind of background action for what really is important, that her hero boyfriend has done the big one. <laughs> the music does a lot in creating the mood for the film and creating that, that spirit. I'm just wondering if you could talk about the musical score. Yeah. Uh, Michael uh, and Jeff Dana did the score. Mike does uh, the scores for Adam E. Goyan's movies. And, and he was originally doing this on his own, and then Adam's movie came in, and he had to work. So we ended up with his brother Jeff being involved, so the two of them did it. And it was a really fine balance, because it's got all the temptations to do what you do in kiddie movies, and, 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 and sweet stuff. And Michael's got this wonderful, strange... It's it's quite unsettling. It's very beautiful, but it never settles you. And I think that was very important. I was terrified of any kind of sentimentality creeping into this thing, and, and nor did I want anything that was overstating things. But but the movie, I mean, there are moments when it gets very big, but that's her imagination. So when Dell appears, for instance, Dell is I'm shooting Dell like a giant. It's like something out of Thief of Baghdad, and we've got big sound effects, and the music is doing the same thing. It's just She's in a movie. Ah, and then, of course, it's not a movie. It's just a woman there who's afraid of bees. You're not a ghost at all. Uh, and it, it's this constant playing with how a child would perceive a moment, and then the moment is taken away. I, 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 I think it's a great score, frankly. <laughs> Did you have any dialogue with the author during the process? Yeah, oh, Mitch them? is actually in the film. <laughs> He's there. He came up to Canada. M Mitch is very much involved in both when we were writing the script. He, he read the script. He liked what we had done, and he's there. He's actually in the bus behind Jeff Bridges when Jeff is uh, in terrible <laughs> trouble. There's one moment he goes, oh, God. <laughs> and that's Mitch Cullen. So he is very aware, and the finished film, he saw it in Toronto, and he, he's delighted. He's, he's, he's a, 
he's a little bit angry about one thing because he, he's pissed off that he, I thought of something that he didn't, which is the grandmother's head being kicked in at the end by Joe Dell. That's not in the book, but I just knew we needed some punctuation there that would really drive it. And Mitch said, oh, why didn't I think of that? So Mitch is really delighted with it. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm always very nervous when I'm doing this. It was the same with Fear and Loathing. I mean, Johnny and I weren't really interested in what the audience was going to think of the film. It was what Hunter was going to think of the film. <laughs> And so it's, it's, a, it's a very fine line because on one hand, Mitch is saying to me, he doesn't want me to be restricted by his book. He wants a Gilliam film, but I, I just, I mean, I've got to stay within the world he's created and try to be accurate. One of the most interesting things was when I first read the book and I first contacted him, I said, did you have a picture in mind when uh, you were writing it? And he said, yes. And he said, Christina's World, which is this Andrew Wyeth painting. And I said, and that's exactly the picture I had when I read the book. So I knew we were visually in the same um, ballpark. Was that a house that you found or built? Because that has that references both the painting and also Psycho at the same time. Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but was it just no, there? We, 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 found, we found the house. Everything is there except the porch on the house was... Uh, I saw on a house about a mile away, and I said, let's recreate that porch on the front of that house. But basically, that's the house. It was extraordinary. Everything fell into place on this film in the shooting because Dell's house was just a couple kilometers away. Everything was there. It was like it was waiting to be made. The scenes between the girl and, and Dickens, uh, a line might be crossed, you're saying? I kept saying to everybody, we have to maintain our innocence when we do this thing. We cannot, there's a line that we cannot cross. Now, interestingly enough, in the book, when she's lying on the bed and he crawls on top of her, in the book, his hand goes up her thigh. And I said, can't show that. On a film, that's going to be too strong. It had to be kept right at that edge. And we'll just see if we could just do this tightrope act and <laughs> just stay on it without going across. Because I know the audience is squirming. I know the audience is like, oh, no, oh, no. Because all of our worst thoughts are floating around waiting to, to <laughs> have their moment on screen. And I, I t keep taking it away. And I, th I think Brendan was incredibly important in those scenes because he said, not for one moment can I be predatory in any way. It was actually, again, it was Joe Dell sort of leading in all of those scenes. There's moments and like when they go into the house at the end and, and, and he's, they're about to go upstairs, she's pushing him. She wants to get up there. And he was embarrassed. He was constantly like that with it. So I think that was what intrigued me, how a little girl on the verge of sexuality, not being aware of the danger and the power of that, and yet, and so you stay on that, that line. Uh, and uh, and I, I never know what was going on in Joe Dell's head, even today. I don't know... She's a very smart girl. Her mother worked with her a lot. Her mother was fantastic. She seemed to know everything that was going on, and yet there is that thing of not quite understanding what we know and what we've experienced, and, uh, and she's innocent. The cast is amazing. Did you know right away who you wanted for the roles, or was it a long process? Jeff Bridges, the minute I decided to do this, I said, he's got to be the father. There's no way, because he, the father, you know, he's a junkie. He's a bit of an asshole. He's a selfish bastard. And you've got to love him like she loves him. And that's Jeff. I mean, Jeff walks like, He can do anything. He can kill half the audience. You'll still like him. Uh, and I just thought, okay, Jeff's got that one. And then after that, it was because half the money came from Canada. I had to work with Canadian actors. And I was very worried about that because I thought, I don't know how many are out there. Uh, <laughs> and, and Dickens, Brendan was the first time I've ever cast anybody 
who I haven't met in the flesh. He sent his tape in, and I said, Jesus, that guy's good. And so he's got the part. And and Jodell, we were right at the edge. We were, I'd been looking for quite a long time, and we'd seen a lot of girls, some really good ones, but they just didn't have what she has. And I kept saying, we're going to have to get more desperate here. We've got to look at the papers and, and see if we can spot an accident where a whole family's wiped out except for a little girl. That's who we need. Let's start looking at orphanages. We need a scarred child or somebody really damaged. <laughs> and and I, was, I, was, I was getting really desperate because we were about to start shooting and we still didn't have that part cast. And so I was, started blowing up trains. <laughs> 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 and, but I was, and I, I was, I was so worried that I was going to have to tell Jeremy Thomas, we can't do the movie. We're spending all this money, we can't do the movie because we don't have the, her because she's it. Without her, it doesn't work. And then this tape came in from Vancouver, and there was this little girl in this tape, tiny, running, and she just ran in, did this scene. I said, that's interesting. I brought her to Toronto, did the scene. In fact, it's the scene on the bus with the, the farting and all, and she. Really, she was working with another actor, and there's the moment when he doubles over in pain, and all the other little girls were saying, you know, it serves you right. You know, it was that kind of thing. Hers was like, it was like she was saying, fuck you, serves you right, without saying the word fuck you. And I just, Jesus, that's powerful. And she said, you got the part. Uh, and and she was better than I could have hoped for. Uh, I can't, I keep, you're an expert on these things. I keep trying to think of the movie where there's a child actor in every single scene, never off screen. And I can't think of one that demands as much uh, on screen presence as this one. Walkabout. Yeah? Uh, walkabout? Crooklyn? Mm. In every scene? I'm sorry, Mommy Tourist? <laughs> what else? The Exorcist? No, but she's not on screen not all the time. We're talking about every scene. A whole a film that is based on one child almost. Hmm. And that's what I can't. I know. Pirates of the Caribbean? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Dow House? Okay, I'm going to have to go and check it out. We have a lot of experts in the audience. Okay, advice for filmmakers who want to follow in your footsteps. I think maybe. get a, a decent job like spot welding or plumbing or something like that is what I would do. <laughs> no, there's no hope. I'm the last of a breed. I, I don't even, I can't get a job. I can't get money for my films. It's really true. It really is hard right now. I think all you can do is you get your digital camera and you go and shoot stuff. And you make make it that way. You make a little DVD, you sell it, you start sending it around the place. I don't know what else to do. The studios right now are in turmoil. They're living in constant fear. You're not going to get money there. Independent? There's no such thing as independent filmmaking. It's a lie. I mean, they're all owned by the studios. They're just, you know, a facade stuck up in front of another bit of the studio. Um, it's really hard. I mean, Jeremy Thomas, who produced this, who's produced uh, Bertolucci's films, he's despairing at the moment. He says, I don't know what to make next because this has been proved to be a, a real problem. We don't have distribution in Germany and Italy and in Spain. It's been a nightmare to get something like this released. Uh, I don't know. I just think you do what you do with, you know, you can edit at home, a DVD, you can make stuff. And then you just start putting it on the web, handing it out on the street corners, and maybe, maybe. But it's persistence, patience, and and giving up the rest of your life, basically. <laughs> well, uh, if you're ready to do that, you're on. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you since you brought up the word um, digital is that something I like about the film a lot is that it has a sort of handmade feeling that I think the only like sort of heavy – Digital computer graphics scene might be the scene when um, she goes down the, into the hole, um, but it seems like well even that even that yeah. isn't. I mean we built yeah. a model for the hole, mm -hmm. so okay. 
and everything you see there are real objects which we've all put yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah, but there's so much use of real landscape and just. Well, that was that was well, that was part of the the you know joy from having done Grimm's, which was just big, cumbersome. Everything was slow and complicated. It was like 113 days of shooting with three units. It's just like this huge army. And then rushing off to Canada with a small group of people in, in 50 days, you make a movie, and it's, it's, it was nice. And that's what I love about stories, and that's why I like Grimm's fairy tales. When I was a kid, I love being scared and coming out of things. Oh, I made it. Oh, that wasn't so bad after all. It's, it's a kind of way of developing, you know, muscles against what life is going to throw at you later. It's this one is such a strange one because people who like it can't understand how people can't like it, and yet there's an awful lot that don't, that hate it. And yet I, I find, somebody said, it's the most tender film I've ever made. I think it is. I think it's a very sensitive, I, I'm really proud of this film, I, um, uh, despite what the critics tell me. <laughs> it's 25 years since I made Time Bandits, and this is somehow my version of the same kind of thing, a child's imagination 25 years on. And both films were done in a very handmade way. Uh, and it's, it's nice. Scenes, scenes like the underwater uh, house, again, had I had more money, I would have been very nervous about it and done it in a proper way. We just, I got the whole crew to put every bit of furniture and picture frame and everything on a wire, and we drilled holes in the ceiling of the room, and they were all were on, on top of the room, and we came in with the camera, and we're running at like 96 frames to slow it down, and the curtains were on wires that people were swinging. The whole crew was just wiggling this stuff around, and that's the background plate for that. And then and we did sort of her coming down, the swimming down the stairs. We just had one of her doubles, somebody holding the double in the air and walking through. We're going one, two, three, four, five. Okay, and then when it came to shooting her, different speed, we did we had to do it faster. So one, two, three, four, five, and we did the moves like that. It was all done without the normal motion capture tracking digital. None of that was used. It was just woo, <laughs> and it works. <laughs> and I already asked if we could have Jeff Bridges' carcass for the museum, <laughs> but I guess it's I guess that's taken. It's in his garden. Yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the deal. He wanted it. <laughs> question about the incredible sense of detail in your films and how do you work with the uh, constraints of the budget in terms of getting what you want up on the screen? Uh, there's never enough money to do what I want to do. That's basic, which is a good thing. If I were allowed to have all the money I wanted to do, it would be just the most awfully tedious, overwrought thing. So I, I actually like working against restraints as a way of deciding what's important and what isn't important. But the detail is just what I do. I love all the detail. It gives a kind of, to me, a believability about the thing. And it's a world that you can actually get lost in. And it's also, with DVDs, it gives people a chance to watch the film again and again and discover new things. Uh, I wasn't planned that way. It's just my obsession with detail. And when you're shooting, you know, things take time to light. So, okay, I get bored. So let's go and fiddle, put a little something in there. But it's it's always working to a budget. Uh, so in the case, this is a low-budget film, but we crammed a lot of detail in. It's also working with really good people who do, who also want to put things in. Once you encourage people to say, not so much encourage them, but let them know that I see all the detail and appreciate it all. They're there to please, and I just throw more stuff than I need half the time. I don't. Did you see the Python albums in there? Yeah. yeah. I didn't. I mean, that was just the prop guy doing it as a joke. He thought it was right, so I thought they're fantastic. It's not my idea. <laughs>
It was Monty Python's contractual obligation. That's right, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question about critics and do you read reviews? And you seem kind of indignant to some critics, but do, do, do you I really read these reviews? Yeah, I, I try not to, but I end up doing it. I'm always peeking, and I'm always astonished. I mean, I don't mind bad reviews if they tell me something interesting. They just don't tell me anything interesting. I mean, I, like talk, I don't know what film they're talking about. It's not the one we made. Uh, and it's like I keep thinking there's a doppelganger going on out there, another film out there that is pretending to be my film, and they're watching. Now, there's too many people reviewing, to be quite honest. There's too many people. They're just opinions. So a reviewer's opinion is no more important to me than your opinion or the person's next. I mean, it's just opinions. Uh, it's just when it's in your face in the press that hurts more. But I'm getting better at not reading them. <laughs> Okay. This is a man is a compliment, but your films make her feel nauseous and dizzy. <laughs> so I was hoping to end on an upbeat note after no, I thought, film critics. But do you vomit ever after my films? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, to me, I'm satisfied if I actually get that ki any kind of reaction, something that would get you buzzing, get you thinking, un un disturbs you, makes you look at the world in a different way, makes you think. These are the things. If you were to come and say, "Oh, your films are okay," I, I would die. I mean, that's just awful. It wants to be okay. I, I actually want to get responses out of people, and I don't really care what they are. I like the fact that films like this, there's so many varied responses, and the way people see the film are very different, but it's got them thinking and reacting, and that's, that's all we try to do. And your version of the film might be better than my version. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody needs to run to the bathroom, out the back, and otherwise, good luck with the film, and Thank thanks you. a lot for Thank being you. here. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.